Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are thrilled to uh, be in conversation with you again today. And I think I'm pretty excited about the topic we're turning to today. We've dealt with some conflicts in the church uh, that has dealt with some stuff that's been either pretty heady theological stuff or historical things. And today we shift gears as we begin to talk about some of the Christian fights over worship. And Clint, you know, I've got to think that there's probably not a topic that we could more relate to as Christians in our own time and place. Yeah, I don't know what it says that the more practical conversation is the fights we've had over what happens in the sanctuary. But historically, I think this is something that people will have a connection with. You know, very few of us are going to feel ourselves deeply ingrained in the arguments we've been covering, even the Reformation arguments. But I suspect that nearly everyone listening is going to have some moment where they were in a church that squabbled over something that did or didn't happen in worship. And really, when it comes to worship, we have been able to fight about just about every aspect of it. I mean, we really what happens in the sanctuary, there's almost none of it has been off limits to some conflict and some controversy. And I would say, Michael, that on the whole, my experience of worship battles have been that they are not theological in the sense that they're not part of an, uh, a systematic, thoughtful case. They generally have to do with our comfort level and our personal preferences. Yeah, I think that's right, Clint. And, you know, we're not going to spend time looking backwards today at church history and and historic fights. I do think it's worth saying as we enter into that conversation that there have been fights about worship as long as there has been Christians. And that is important, I think, because on on one hand, it grounds us in the reality that we're not different. We don't live in a different time, and we just suddenly started fighting about worship. There's been a lot of thought about this distinction that you just make. There's been a lot of people who've given time and attention to how do we separate between the theological substance of what we do in worship and why it's important and how we stay connected to it. And where are we starting to stray into areas more like, well, I like it this way, or I prefer that worship has it this way, or we've always done it this way, and so therefore we should continue to do it this way. There's a fine line there, Clint, between the reason why we do it is because it's deeply connected to meaning and uh, an intention, a thoughtful, heartfelt intention to lift up to God in worship. And then there's this other side that says, well, I resonate more with, or I think it's better when. And these are not unimportant, and I don't want to sort of smash down on those right away. But the, the substantial difference between the theological underpinning and the preferential treatment, those things matter as we come to worship, because if I was going to be honest, I would say a majority of our modern worship debates, not exclusively, but a majority of them live more on the preference side than on the theological side. Yeah, or maybe you could say the the question of what is appropriate in worship. And it seems to me, Michael, that the sanctuary is the place where our theology and our practice meet the most often. And so we... If we're going to feel some emotional attachment to the the patterns and traditions of a particular congregation, those are likely going to be based on what happens in the sanctuary. And and so it, it very much is sacred ground for people, but it's not always theological ground. And, and maybe an example helps. When I was in 
seminary, actually may have been in college, took a music class, a religious theology of music class. And of course, the hymn In the Garden comes up, which among theologians and musicians is not well regarded. And, you know, and they could make a very good case for why that is in those parameters a substandard piece of music and has some fairly loose theology in it as well. However, when a person has sung that at the funerals of their loved ones, when they have sat and heard that song in the community that they grew up in and look back on that time with fond memories, I can understand theologically the points, but emotionally, that's my mother, grandmother's favorite right. hymn, whatever it is. And so saying, you know, that, that hymn doesn't really fit in the sanctuary, I, I may be able to assent to that mentally, but that's going to that's going to bring a reaction emotionally. And and I think most of our worship battles throughout the years have lived in that emotional side of of the equation. And I I think that's very natural. We get very attached to things and when they when they affect us as good, we assume that they are good. And so when they're questioned, we we don't like it. Yeah, and we don't do change well, <laughs> right? That is just to be human. Yeah, I I want to dig in there a little bit because I think you're right on the money, Clint. Both of us have had the privilege of getting to worship with, serve in uh, different congregations, and you know the reality is music tends to be a sticking point in congregations. I think it's for that very reason that you're naming. Music has a way of affecting us. It has a way of connecting with us in a way that's not just intellectual. It connects to our hearts. Uh, it brings back memories. It comforts. Uh, music has a sort of multi-dimensional sense that I think is uh, makes it unbelievably powerful. If you look back in history, by the way, you're going to find that there are some Christians who have been suspect of music for that very reason. They've said, you know, you got to be careful with music because it, it can uh, make it easy for you to, to lose focus on the purpose of worship. But we're not going to delve into that. I think the point that's worth making in the conversation, though, is it is very easy once we get into the place of music, to leave worship saying, I liked fill in the blank. That was beautiful, which brings with it the corollary. Someone else says, that was ugly. I didn't like that. That wasn't good. And when we do that, we subtly shift focus. And in that moment, worship was directed, at least worship's purpose was directed towards us and away from God. And as those who inhabit the Reformed tradition, we're going to emphasize that worship is ultimately an offering that we make to God as a body. The idea is that we as a collective are making this offering to God as a form of thanksgiving. Of course, we bring ourselves in petition. We ask God uh, to be with those who are in need. We seek God's voice in the proclamation of Scripture. But, but we are offering up in worship this thing that we desire to be a reflection of our gratitude and praise. And when we 
uh, come into these moments where the affect of worship becomes a measure of the value of worship, we've now entered into this realm in which we're becoming the sole arbiters of what is good, what isn't good, and, and we begin to operate in a way that I think subtly we didn't intend on operating, but it can become very divisive very quickly. Yeah, and I agree, Michael. I think music is the place we access that reality the most often. When I, when I say that, that this piece of music is good, I, I don't... I don't bring enough to the conversation to say that from a musical standpoint. I, I can't talk about what key it's in or whether it represents its style well. I often don't even mean that the lyrics are well written or that it's polished. I, I simply mean that I like it. It it sounds good to me. It makes me feel a certain way that, that I appreciate it for. And so I, I would say that we in the church tend to label our music with the loosest label of good almost exclusively mm. tied to our experience of that music and i think you can kind of see that you know the the camp movement of the late 60s where people started to bring acoustic guitars into church and do some singing in the mainline church the others had a head start on us but then through the 70s even the the very rough beginnings of what might be called worship bands which ultimately then moved into the community church model in say the 80s and and huge in the 90s and if you look at the path of two churches one with good, attractive music and bad theology, and one with bad music but good theology, my money's on the first to grow. It, it, music is a huge attractor for people, and the community church model figured this out. I mean, they, they didn't—when they moved into a building, they didn't build an organ. They didn't install an organ. They had a band up front. And, and people found that very accessible. And in the mainline church, the Presbyterian and other church, we were suspect of that, though most of us, I think, have, uh, have gained at least some degree of comfort with the idea that it happens. We may not want it in the service we attend, but we understand that it's probably okay for those who prefer it, but but it created this kind of divide, and and I think interestingly in our lifetimes, I think we have seen maybe the largest battles over worship music in the history of the church. Yeah, and you've already named it, but I, I want to just circle back to it and make it explicit, Clint. I think one of the reasons those battles became so fraught is because there was this belief that it was the worship style itself that would attract the people to the church. In other words, there was this prevailing idea that if the only music you had in your worship service was organ, all of these band people were lost, that, that you could just count them out, they're not coming to your church, and vice versa, that the, the, the band people are going to go to their church, and that uh, if you um, didn't have an organ, you're never going to get these other people. And what happened was this sort of, almost 
recess, elementary school recess kind of team splitting where, you know, I pick you, you pick you. And ultimately, both of those are dif- different sides of the same coin, right? If you say, I'm only going to a church that has a great rock band, well, that excludes you from the other church. And there was this idea that the music would sort itself out, which is, uh, it makes sense preferentially. It doesn't make sense theologically, because the body of Christ can worship in many places and in many styles. It doesn't need any particular musical accoutrement to be able to worship faithfully. But yet, I think we, as a matter of course, sort of culturally began to speak as if those were two realities we had to choose between. And it caused some significant division between church bodies. And I'm not laying any of the blame for this at the feet of music, but it coincides, I think, Michael, with a time when things like denominational loyalty begin to be less important. And so what becomes the new predictor of what church I go to, not whether I've called myself Methodist historically or whether I consider myself Lutheran or Presbyterian, I may start there, but all of a sudden worship style becomes the the primary... Um, route that people are using to find a church. I, I want to find a church that worships the way that I like, whether traditionally or non-traditionally, whatever, whatever labels you want to give to that. But rather rather than I need to find a Lutheran church or I need to find a Presbyterian mm-hmm. church, I need to find a church that has this style. I need to find a church that has this style. And And we've seen that We've seen that ebb and flow a little bit in the 80s and 90s. The, the, that balance was weighted heavily to the end of the community church. B- big, loud, lights, sound, computers, screens. And, and out of that, it began to move back as people said, well, I miss liturgy. I miss quiet. I miss reflection. And so ultimately, the pendulum did go pretty far that direction, but it started to move back. And I think as we enter entered and, and are in the early part of the 21st century, there has been more of a balance as people begin to look past style and look for the right kind of community for them. And uh, it will be interesting to see where that goes in the next few decades. But I do think we've seen some shifts. It's going to take more than good music to bring people to a congregation, generally speaking, in this day and age right now, in my opinion. I agree. And I think that worship is both a place where wires get crossed for the congregation. But I think it also happens in church leadership, Clint. I think there's a sense in which sometimes pastors put a lot of stock in, if I could change this in worship, everything else would be fixed. And a lot of times that too is a matter of preference, that the pastor, whoever they are, would like it to be this way as opposed to this way. And I've seen times where, you know, you get a thing in the mail that says, you know, if you do this thing, three keys to success as a church, change this in your worship, get this new church program that's going to show fancy backgrounds on the screen or, you know, get this instrument or, hey, uh, if you follow this webinar or this particular church sort of uh, leader or trainer, they're going to help you get your worship fixed and people are going to come in. There's this sort of 
quick fix mentality that exists even in church leadership, this temptation, if we make it a little bit jazzier or we change it a little bit, that it's going to just sort of um, be the thing that gets built and everybody's going to come. And that, I think, is a fundamental misordering of what we mean by worship. And that temptation exists for every Christian, regardless of their role in a congregation. We, when we misorder worship away from the, the maintenance of divine worship, the recognition of a God who created, redeems, sustains, when we move away from that fundamental reality, what ends up happening is we begin to reincarnate worship into our own image. And, and that is, I think, where we begin to find some of the knockout, dragout arguments become destructive. They, they become moments in which churches devolve away from the core gospel, and they begin to look less like the body that they were called to be. They, less, they look less diverse. They look uh, less age groups are reflected. Less people are able to actually worship because it becomes more and more about emphasizing one voice, one style, uh, one way of being in the world, as opposed to the whole family. And, uh, you know, Clint, that's easy to talk about. It's really hard to live out. I think that Presbyterians have historically been suspicious of the idea of entertaining people or by bringing people in through entertainment. And that has caused us, I think, to be slow and very cautious as we've finally begun to move into an, an awareness that it's okay to offer people something that resonates with them. However, if that is the point, if the point is that people are drawn to this style and not to the substance of worship, then then we have to answer some very serious questions. Because ultimately, the evaluation of worship isn't whether you or I liked it, whether it fit us, but whether it gives glory and praise to God in a way that is fitting, in a way that is accessible. And, you know, this, I think, if we could enact these conversations and discussions about worship with that in mind, we would probably have far less tense moments and hurt feelings. It, you know, the the idea that we're going to argue this kind of music is better than that kind of music, but really all that's at stake in that is I like this better. I'm I'm not saying that that God can't be glorified in this music. I just don't like it. And I, I think it demands a certain level of humility to understand that look this is these are not unimportant questions but they're not the primary question who is worship for is the primary question and and the reformed church has always stood heavily on the ground that worship is first and foremost for god and then secondarily for us and when you frame it that way I, I think it allows you to have conversations about style and content without them being knockdown dragouts. In other words, when we make when we refuse to make those things sacred because we already honor what is sacred, it, then we can talk about: Do you like this style? Do you like that? Do you do you think drum do drums work for this community? Do they not? Is this music? 
better for us than that. You know, then I think you can diffuse some of those and have real conversations about what happens in the sanctuary. I think another lens that you can lay across this conversation is, especially in the modern era, there's been a lot of thinking and discourse surrounding what the ultimate attractant of worship is supposed to be. Is it supposed to bring in sort of the insider weekly and meet their preferences and help them sort of spiritually be rejuvenated, you know, really give them an experience that that they can resonate with, they can go into their week, uh, load it up, ready to go, and then come back next Sunday? Or is worship for the outsider? Is it for the guests, for the visitors? It, should it be easy to enter into? Should it, should it make sense? Should you not have a lot of up? and down and a lot of moving around? Should there be less sort of readings and and should it be more a little bit like a show or entertainment because people can relate to that? Is that more accessible for somebody who's maybe not a Christian? And there have been entire churches founded on that principle alone. Well, we are for this group of people and we're going to try to serve them well, or we're for this group of people, we're going to try to attract them and bring them in. And when we do that, we begin to, I think, segment our churches into very finite groups of people. And in doing so, we actually lose a lot of the richness of what worship is intended to do. Because worship, if you're really willing to let it play out, speaks to all of us in different stages of our life, right? Within a worship service in the Presbyterian tradition, we're going to have prayer, which recognizes the difficulty that's happening in people's lives. We're going to have moment of scripture readings. Often there's a praise or affirmation where we offer back to God gratitude. We intentionally incorporate a diverse group of elements in worship so that all of it reflects the whole body that's present. But when we become fixated on a particular group that worship is intended for, what begins to happen is worship begins to include less and less of that diversity, becomes more and more finely tuned to a particular group. And I think that that has been dangerous because our churches in many ways, uh, especially in the mainline, have begun to reflect a very small cross-section of our communities. If we're honest, we could do a better job of being open and hospitable and welcoming. And that doesn't require us going to our worship committees and saying, all right, got to get a guitar in the sanctuary, otherwise they won't come. It, it requires us having a real conversation about who we are and are we really open and what would worship look like if we were. But that substantial conversation, I think, gets pulled into these less substantial conversations really quickly. Yeah, I think that there is a very interesting ground to walk there, Michael. And as people who are involved in planning worship, the, the reality on one hand is that worship reflects the people who are there. So the people who are coming to a particular church, they're generally coming because they they like or at least are comfortable with what happens there. They have some affiliation. They have generally some approval of what's going on there. And so as a worship leader, you want to honor that. You want to say what we're doing seems to be working for this group of people who resonate with it. However, you also know at any given moment there are these other people out there who aren't in church and who aren't probably going to connect in the same way with what you're doing. And so how do we broaden our offering without sacrificing or alienating the people who like it, but 
opening it up, trying to build some bridges to people who aren't yet in it. And that's, that's a tough ground to walk. And when we get territorial, when we have to do that because we've always done that becomes a mantra in a church, that church is going to struggle. When we lose the idea to say that worship is a place we can experiment, worship is a place where we can try new things. Worship is not evaluated by, do I like it? But rather, have we done something in the name of Jesus Christ that seeks to be honoring to God and equip people for living out their faith? Then it gives, there's a certain freedom. And, And I will say, not to make this a commercial for First Press, but I will say one of the things I think First Presbyterian Church does really well is allow the freedom to have different experiences in worship. Now, some of that is we have incredible music staff, and on any given Sunday, our choir may do a piece that's out of out of ordinary. Our organists may play something classical or something modern. We have the ability to have some of our other musicians involved. I, I mean, I think from a, a musical standpoint, we reflect here the idea that w- we can always be experimenting with new things to see if they work. And if they don't, well, that doesn't mean they're bad. It means they're maybe not for us. But in doing so, we may discover some new things we can do as well. And I appreciate that openness because I think it makes it far easier to have a working understanding of what we're trying to do when we come to the sanctuary together. You know, I think the temptation of the church has long been to consider worship as the thing that we do on Sunday. That becomes the metric. Well, I like that we do it in that order. I like the stuff that's in that order. Uh, That can get as specific as you want. What we fail to recognize too often, I think, is that ultimately reflection, that worship rather, is a reflection of the people gathered there, of both who they are and who they're called to be, where they're called to go as a body. That's a little bit more nuanced and tricky to to work through, and that has really practical implications. For instance, a lot of churches have what they call a youth Sunday, First Presence Spirit. Like we we've had youth Sundays where we've invited youth to lead worship. The, the failure of thinking in only having a youth Sunday is that you believe that one Sunday a year is the day when we let the youth lead worship. And it's as if there's this one little tiny week that's an island unto itself and the, and the youth are out there. First Pres also has a tradition of having youth participate as liturgists all throughout the year, which I think is a more helpful practice because in that we're reminded that high school youth, college-age youth, these, these are important disciples worshiping within the life of a congregation. It's important for them to be regularly leading in worship as part of that community. That is a subtle shift from where we say, hey, we do this thing where we have youth lead worship, to it's important to us that our youth are reflected in the worshiping life of the congregation because we know that they are part of the congregation. And that is just one particular example. That gets worked out in lots of different ways. We want to make sure that uh, both genders are, are reflected in worship, in our liturgists. We want to make sure that lots of different voices and life experience gets reflected in worship, these musical styles, obviously. But all of this is important, not because of the doing itself necessarily, but because of what that means of who we are and who we're called to be. 
Yeah, I th- I think that as regards this idea of squabbling over worship, it, you know, we we come to that conversation, and it seems to me that if we again can meet on the central theme that worship is first, foremost, and fundamentally for God, th- that secondarily worship is for us, and that worship is not primarily then entertainment. It's not primarily evangelism. It's not primarily discipleship. It's not primarily reflection. It's not primarily about what we get out of it. And none of those are bad. In fact, I think good worship should do all of those things, but it has to do them with God at the center and the core. And, you know, again, Michael, I just think the church... I don't want this to sound judgmental, but in my experience, so much of what we have fought over in worship has little to do with the core issue of what we are trying to do when we worship. And and almost always it comes down to personal preference. And yes, we all like to get our way, and yes, we all like our preferences to be met. And and I do think that none of us, we are all going to struggle. If I try to join a church that doesn't do anything that appeals to me, I'm going to struggle there. There has to be enough connection that I can settle in, learn the rhythms, learn the routines, and make room for me to experience God in those services. And, and if everything in the service is off-putting to me, I, I'm really going to struggle with that. If I never resonate with any of it, I, I'm going to have a very difficult time. But I just find that so much of what we've argued about really has so little to do with the key elements of what we mean when we use the word worship. And so um, I, I've found that for me, most of the worship arguments have been not not real productive. There's a really nuanced sort of distinction between the parts of worship that challenge us and the parts of worship that don't resonate with us. That's a really tricky conversation to have because on one hand, you're exactly right, Clint, and we need to name that there are church families that are just not going to be for you. You're going to go to worship and you're going to realize, you know what, I don't speak this language at all. Theologically or stylistically. Yes, thank you. Yeah, uh, in substance, we're worshiping Jesus Christ together, but I'm not really able to engage with this body. And if that's the place where you're at, I don't think there's any judgment in that. And I think the, the the diversity of the body of Christ is a gift in that sense. But there's another aspect here that I do think is important, where when we go to worship and we lift ourselves up, we seek to offer ourselves to a living God, if we do that weekly, and there is never an occasion in which we are challenged, in which we are uh, really put out there and we see our own hypocrisies, our own sinfulness, when we don't have to grapple with some tough things, if our worship experience doesn't engage the difficult parts of life, then we maybe are not offering worship in the fullness of what it is intended to be. And I think too often people do have an expectation of worship being encouraging, inspiring, meaningful, all good things. And every worshiping congregation should have moments where that is present, 100%. But if that is the only thing on the menu, 
then I would encourage us to to take some self-reflection, to ask ourselves, is this reflective of the diversity of God that we see in the scriptures that we're reading in worship? Because I would argue that you look at something like the Psalms, that includes a lot of praise, a lot of thanksgiving, Clint, but it has a lot of lamentation or or prayers to God uh, that are lifting up grief, pain, struggle. If that's not reflected in our worship and we don't sometimes walk out of the sanctuary saying, that hurt a little bit, I need to reflect on that, then I wonder if we're worshiping in the fullness of what we should be. I had a, a person tell me one time a about a church that they attended. I like it because every time I leave, I feel good. Mm. And I I said, well, be careful with that because clearly the gospel should make us feel good yeah. on regular occasions. But if we're reading all of it, there are also moments it's going to convict us, it's going to challenge us, it's going to... It's going, there's going to be some guilt, there's going to be some rebuke, and the gospel, if all we get is the celebration and the fun parts of the story, we're not encountering the whole gospel. And so, yes, church should make you feel good on a very regular basis, but there are moments it should also uh, challenge you. And if you shrink from those, you're going to miss the experience of growth, because that's when growth growth rarely happens when we feel good growth is generally the byproduct of a struggle and if we if we're not willing to encounter those parts of the gospel we're going to have a hard time growing i think there are moments in which the worship conversation becomes fraught not necessarily because of what we do but because of the assumptions that we've made about it. And I think that's really seen pretty clearly in some of the labels that have popped up for worship over the years, Clint. People have begun to talk about worship as contemporary versus traditional, which we've had some significant conversations about. You've, in fact, had some sermons, uh, and we've generated some conversations in the congregation about. There is some real uh, good merit in pausing and reflecting on how we talk about what we do in the sanctuary, because there's implications, such as when we say that we have traditional worship and contemporary worship, it might leave one with the impression that the traditional worship is no longer contemporary, that it's locked in time, and it's sort of solidified unto itself. I think that when we talk about contemporary versus traditional and what we mean are particular instrumentation in different services— we have once again pigeonholed those services such that they can't branch out and do something different. I wonder, Clint, what do we do as we begin to think about worship, not just as our experience of it, but the one to whom we offer worship? What does that do to our labels and how we talk about the worship experience? Yeah, a little bit of a softball, Michael, because you know my biases. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable and often dislike the words we attach to worship. Any label that we give worship in addition, generally for me, makes it worse, not better. It limits it, doesn't expand it. So when we talk about historic worship or casual worship or, you know, informal or formal worship, liturgical worship, contemporary, alternative, I, I don't find most of those words 
helpful at all. I, faithful worship is, I think, the litmus that we should use, whether we wear suits or not. I, I understand that when we say those things, we're trying to communicate the style. And and again, that matters. It, it is important for people to have some sense of what's going to happen when you get here. But the reality is all of those labels carry an implication of A, superiority, meaning that the opposite is less. So traditional worship implies that it's somehow better than contemporary, which implies that it's somehow better than traditional. The the truth is that both are essential and both are important. And so I, I, I regret that I think we've not put enough thought into these um, modifiers, these labels. You know, we're, we're currently in an interesting moment where we talk about in-person worship and online worship. New labels have been added to our sort of canon and how we talk about yeah. worship. And and already we're getting the camps. I had somebody send me a, a, a message from some pastor in, I, I think, Tennessee, saying that churches who weren't meeting in person were being unfaithful, that you cannot worship online. Well, that's just false. We, I, we have experienced—I've had enough conversations with people during this pandemic to know that what we have been sending out online has created an opportunity for real, genuine— moments of worship. Is worship better when we can all come to the sanctuary together? Yeah, there are aspects of that that are truly better. Of course, from a communal standpoint, that's better. But to say that online worship can't be accomplished is insanity. And it it it's not, again, we are so quick to focus on that word instead of worship. Whenever we put a word in front of it, that becomes the metric that we evaluate with. And, and it's an unfortunate reality that I think we are um, living through, and I, and I hope living past, because I don't, I don't find it helpful. I agree completely. And I don't want to talk shop here. I hope this isn't boring for those joining us. But this is an incredibly nuanced conversation, Clint. I've seen church signs that say things like, watch worship online at whatever, whatever time. Mm -hmm. That word watch matters. What are you doing when you're coming online? Are you just spectating? Are you just watching? Or are you joining worship? Are you participating in worship, which is a word that we would use when we're talking about coming to church? We have that in non-COVID times as well, where we talk about things like, well, I have to go sit through church, or I have to go be in church. Well, okay, it's good that your physical body is in the in the sanctuary, but that's really the lowest common denominator that you got yourself there that day. If we're really theologically seeking to offer ourselves to the creator of all things, we can do better than sit through. Th- those fine words do have implications that matter. And the label that we use to describe worship is not just stylistic. It's about how we are going to behave and act in 
that worship. And that's really a matter of the heart. Jesus talks about how it's not the action that matters per se, it's the heart with which it is done. It's the intention, that God knows the intention of the heart. And, you know, that's where worship gets really messy because it's not about the stuff, but the stuff is a reflection of the hearts in which it is offered, the intention of those who come to do it. And these labels are part of that intention. So I, I would really advise it's worth doing a checkup every now and then on how do I talk about worship? How do I think about worship? What, what verbs do I use when I do that? Because that is on some level of reflection of what purpose you see worship providing for you, and ultimately, uh, is it related to the worship of God? And, and, you know, I think all of us could grow in that sort of continual reforming of that reminder that worship is ultimately beyond just our perception of it, and it's good for us to change our labels where we need to to reflect that. Yeah, style matters and accessibility matters, but the point of worship is not to connect with style, but to connect with Jesus Christ. And if if we if our allegiance is to the style, then we have not yet understood what it means to come into the sanctuary or the space for worship and worship. Uh, style is just a helpful tool seeking to get us to the end of connection with with Christ with uh, an encounter with God. And Michael, I, I think that we will be in the next probably couple years, I think we will be in a very interesting place with regard to worship. You know, in the hopefully near future, you're going to have millions and millions of people coming back into sanctuaries, mm -hmm. in some cases not having done that for probably a year at that point. And maybe maybe what that does is, I, I suppose it could do two things. It could make the sacred cows even more sacred, hmm. uh, right? The, it could make the style even more off limits. But I, I hope instead that it creates a gratitude, that it creates an appreciation. It, it's easy to do a thing every week and take and end up taking it for granted. When you've knocked out 50, 100, 200, 500 worship services, it's, it's pretty easy to not think of that as something special. And yet after this pause, maybe we all reenter the sanctuaries and our communal worship services with a better sense of what a wonderful gift it is to gather with brothers and sisters and and hopefully that will be more important. The act of worship and the community of worship will be more important than what hymns we sing on the day we go back, and and whether the communion table was moved or whether you know the stained glass window was in the right place. It, whatever it is that we sometimes think of as important, I hope those things kind of fade in the background, and we for at least a, a window of time get to truly celebrate. The, the gift of coming together into the sanctuary before God and offering praise. I think that is going to be a wonderful gift, that moment when we get to see each other, and we're going to get to not just do the wave, but actually give each other a hug, get to drink coffee across from one another, get to do all of the things that have been markers of what it means to be a family. 
And there's going to just be sheer gratitude in that process. I think maybe one of the temptations of coming back is going to be the idea of what we've talked about before, and that is going back, going back in time to practices and habits that we've always done sheerly for the fact that we've done them. And sometimes we miss the sheer gravity of just doing a thing over and over tends to make it easier to do that thing. It's just a rolling sort of process such that when worship happens every week, you don't have a lot of time to rethink the wheel every week, and nor should you. Everybody sort of has a rhythm, and you keep going down through the rhythm. The gift of this time has been the struggle of making worship happen. And there's a sense in which the maintenance of divine worship does require work for everyone in the congregation. And one of the things I've appreciated about this time, so we've got to rethink things like, maybe we could have people who aren't liturgists, in other words, people comfortable standing in front of a congregation to read a thing, call a voicemail so that we can hear their voice in worship. Or kids can make pictures and that gets included in worship. There's been a lot of things that have made worship more work in this time. But that work hasn't necessarily been negative. There's a sense in which we've got to try some things that would have never been tried in the normal process of worship previous. And that does present this problem then. When one comes back to the sanctuary, what sanctuary is one coming back to? And that is fundamentally not the most important question. I think that's the one we're all sort of asking. What will it look like? What will it feel like to to be back in that place? But really, I think the ultimate question is, how can we as a church body reflect who we are now in the worship that we offer. And what that will look like, you know, quite frankly, will look like more work. (laughs) It'll look like us trying to be faithful as a body of Christ. But I think it's a fascinating sort of new opportunity that lies ahead. Yeah, it will be a challenge because the temptation of the church has always been to make worship about us. And it will be a moment where we're glad to be back, we're grateful, and we think, oh, isn't this great for us? And what do we want to do now? And again, not unimportant questions, right. just not essential, not not good first questions. And so this will be, I think, an opportunity for the church. And I, I hope that it will be a, a renewal of worship and not, you know, a, a chapter in some future podcast about worship battles. Uh, I hope that churches are able to celebrate to incorporate new things that they've learned and new skills that they've developed during this time. But what I think drives the church is this fundamental conviction that Jesus Christ must be praised, Mm -hmm. that God must be honored, and that the people of Jesus Christ will come together to do that. And if that be by computer for a season, so be it. If that be hidden in caves historically from fear, so be it. But nothing has ever stopped the church from worshiping, nor could anything. And so I'm very frustrated with language about can you or can't you worship in this way or that way. Yes, yes. If God is at the center, then largely it becomes less important what music you're singing and whether you have pews or chairs or stained glass windows or a strip mall, those things 
matter to some extent, but not very much. And what matters most is did we come together in a way that worked for us and was open to new people, and did we worship Jesus Christ? Was he celebrated? Was he magnified? Was he lifted up? And were we challenged to be better disciples? And if we've done that, then I don't think it matters if you have an organ, a guitar, a tambourine, or if you just banged on bongos, you had worship, and you should celebrate it. Yeah, that's a really, really subtle shift, and I want to make that explicit for those who are with us in the conversation. There's a bit of bait and switch when we come to talk about worship, and we end by saying, not really worship. It's really the one in worship. And that shift, though subtle, is essential. That is the substance of worship. And I think we miss the force and power of it, Clint, because if we believe, and and we do believe theologically, that the Spirit of God meets us in worship, that that Spirit uh, brings a moment in which we are taken up into the divine life, that, that God is doing something, really doing something in that moment. And if we do believe that, uh, maybe if we don't, we need to be reminded of it, if we do believe that, then what God does in that place is good unto itself because God was there, because Jesus Christ, the one who died, was resurrected and ascended, that one is lifted up in that place. And as those who go through our week, who struggle with the sins that we know that we struggle with, our own frailty, our own weakness, who knows what it means to be tired and and to bear in ourselves uh, just grief and sadness, all of the things that we carry with us day to day to day, that moment should be a moment in which we are face to face with the reality of the good news of the gospel, a weekly uh, encounter with the one who goes with us in every time and place. And Clint, that is what makes worship essential. That's what makes worship substantial. And the stuff that we do in worship does help us as we seek to make that encounter. But but the subtle shift is important. Let's move away from the stuff of worship, which is the stuff that largely we fight about, and let us focus on the core thing that should be shared by all who enter worship, and yet we do rem- need reminded of what that is. Right, and I, I think if we, the more that we're able, Michael, to keep that front and center, the, the less that we will be tempted to have destructive conversations or arguments mm-hmm. about the other. We can still talk. We, can, we will always have preferences. We will always have choices that seem better or worse for us or maybe for others and suit other purposes. But as long as we keep the, the main thing the main thing, we can have those conversations without them becoming a disruption or a destruction of the thing we're trying to do or say we're trying to do, which is worship. So we're grateful that you've uh, joined in. We hope that we haven't rambled too much. We hope that uh, there's been something in this has been thought-provoking. We realize that this one's a little different in that we didn't talk about specific battles. But again, I, I think you've encountered them. I think you, you've seen them. I think you understand that background. So we hope this um, inspires some thoughtfulness, some thinking about what it is that we do each week that we get together, whether that be in the sanctuary or in this current moment online, and what it means to worship Jesus Christ together as a family. Yeah, and ultimately, hopefully, it enables a a kind of 
a personal checkup. I think it's maybe difficult in the conversation about mm-hmm. Jesus's divinity versus humanity to to sort of have a weekly sort of reminder of the purpose of faith. I mean, we know that's important, but it does help reorient us when we come to worship to have a moment which we we really do sell ourselves and ask, "Hey, why am I here? Lord God, help remind me of that." Right. Worship is generally not something that's done to us, something that's done by us. And something we seek to do well. And so uh, if you have thoughts on that, we'd love to hear them. Friends, thanks for joining us for another Pastor Talk conversation. It's always good to be with you. And uh, we look forward to continuing on our series where we try to make church fights a little bit more fun. (laughs) Until next time, see you soon.